Well, thank you for being with me. I'm Al Cresta. And as I said in the open today's program, I, I see a spasm of intellectual conversions out there. Um, conversions not to the better either. There's a, it's come to my attention, uh, notable, some notable formerly conservative, theologically conservative uh, Catholics and theologically conservative Protestants who are now um, making common cause or alliance with those theologically liberal and theologically Catholics and theologically liberal Protestants on issues like immigration, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, contraception. Um, Look, uh, we can certainly work with people we disagree with on important topics that, you know, for the common good. I mean, on the abortion front, for instance, uh, we've had a number of atheists that have been uh, part of the broad pro-life movement. So it isn't the cooperation for the common good that I think is a problem, not at all. But there really, we, we should realize there's a very big difference between what I'm going to call theological liberalism and conservative liberalism. Uh, and the big difference can boil down to one basic thing. Has God spoken? Do we have a divine revelation? Do we have a reliable word from God that we can understand and appeal to? You know, for those in liberal theological circles, the idea of divine revelation is pretty much dead. Uh, it's been redefined as, oh, it's a, the record of human beings' religious experience. So it's what so-and-so says they experienced about God. It's not what God says. It's what so-and-so says about his experience of God. And so revelation gets turned into, uh, anth- you know, theology gets turned into anthropology. That's one way of putting it. Study of God gets turned into study of human religious experience and human reflection. And yet, Revelation is central to Christian faith. Take John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Then down to verse 14. And this Word became flesh and made his dwelling or dwelt among us. Now, to the original hearers and readers of John's gospel, the idea of the Word, the Logos, that exists from before creation, uh, this idea of the Word is vitally important. For the Jews, for instance, uh, when they heard John's gospel, uh, they hear in the beginning, which is an echo of what? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So for the Jews who uh, read John's gospel or heard John's gospel, uh, the Word was God's creative force that called all things into being. Uh, That divine mind, uh, that divine Word in the mind of the Jews was a creative Word. It not only was an idea, but it did what the idea signified. So when God says, let there be light, there was light. It's a performative utterance. The word, uh, Isaiah 55, verse 11, so, so my, is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So this idea of a, a word that made a difference, not just in your thinking, but in the world of experience, that wouldn't be alien to a Jewish believer of the first century. What would have been alien to them was the idea that uh, this word would be incarnate in a human 
uh, in this case, a, a man. Uh, so the idea of a divine word wasn't alien uh, to the Greeks either. A lot of people forget this. So when, when John says, in the beginning was the word, this is, the Jews pick up on it immediately. Uh, and when John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, they may, have think that, may think that was scandalous, but the idea of the word alone isn't scandalous. And for the Greeks, the idea of the word is not scandalous. Heraclitus, for instance, taught that everything we see in our experience is in constant flux. You can't step into the same river twice, right? That's the famous line. Um, but Heraclitus didn't believe that experience or reality was just flux. He says, life is not chaos, because while we see change constantly all around us, the change we see is not mere random change. It's ordered change. And this means that there must be a divine reason or idea that controls it. And by the time John wrote his gospel, Heraclitus' days were 700 years in the past, but his ideas had been formative. They, you can find echoes of them in Plato and later in the Stoics. So when John writes, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's basically saying, listen, you Greeks, the very thing that has most occupied your philosophical thought over the centuries, uh, about which you've been writing all these centuries, the Logos of God, the Word, L-O-G-O-S, the Word of God, this Word, this controlling power of the universe, this controlling power of man's mind and logic, this word has come to earth as a man, and we have seen him in the flesh. Now, that's startling. Coming into flesh is the startling part, not the idea that there is such a word. It's an atheist uh, philosopher by the name of Luke Ferry. He wrote a very sharp 250-page work called A Brief History of Thought, and that's brief. Um, when he gets to the transition from the Greek and Roman philosophy, the classical world, when he gets to the transition from the classical world to the Christian world, he points out that Christianity successfully supplanted uh, Greek and Roman philosophy. Uh, he, he points out that the Greeks believed that at the heart of the universe was what I said earlier, that there was a logos, a logos, a word. And they believed that, that the heart of the universe was ultimate reality. And if you're going to live an authentic life— you had to get your life aligned and somehow get in sync with that ultimate reality or that logos. So then you would be all that you were originally designed to be. What do Christians say? Well, when Christians come along, they say, we know what's at the heart of the universe. It's the logos, like you say, it's the word. That's the ultimate reality. Uh, but the logos for the Greeks was impersonal. It was a divine structure of the cosmos as a whole. But to the horror of the Greeks, the Christians maintained not merely that there was a word or a logos, a cosmic principle. They could have gotten with that. What Christians said was that the harmonious order of this world, the logos behind it, was embodied in a single unique personality, <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. And that's how the Gospel of John starts, in English, when in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, interesting point here, uh, this atheistic philosopher Luke Ferry goes on to say that this, this revolutionized ancient thought. The heart of the universe was not an impersonal force. 
like the Greeks believed, or even how the Eastern religions believed. But at the heart of the universe was a person. And it meant there was going to be an unprecedented emphasis on the idea and importance of love. See, many of the Greeks said love wasn't very important at all. But when you've got a person rather than a force at the heart of the universe, love gets very important. And so Ferry goes on and says something to this effect. Uh, By resting his case upon a definition of the human person and an unprecedented idea of love, Christian teachers had an incalculable effect on the history of ideas. To give one example, it's clear that without the Christian reevaluation of the human person, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. Now, this is a secular person you know, looking over here. He doesn't believe in the Christian faith at all. He does believe in human rights, but he doesn't believe in the Christian faith. But he says, when Christians came along and said that the heart of the universe is a person, and that meant that human persons were extremely important now, uh, he's saying that if Christianity hadn't come along, that this whole idea of human rights and human dignity would never have gotten started. And he's right. And today, you know, conservative and liberals both care about what? Human rights. Rights of the unborn, rights of immigrants, rights of women, rights of minorities, rights of workers. We've got the UN Declaration on Human Rights, which is a document that which, you know, most everybody in the world subscribes to a more or less a degree. I mean, it can be the UN Declaration on Human Rights can be poorly interpreted, it can be poorly applied. But the very fact that it exists is testimony to the culture-shaping power of the gospel. So I'm not against working together with people who are living with the fruits of Christian civilization, even if they don't understand the roots of Christian civilization. I'll say that again. I don't mind working with men and women who appreciate the fruit of Christian civilization, even if they don't understand the root of Christian civilization. They can be champions of human rights, without having a consistent framework of understanding human rights. Um, It's like having cut flowers, you know. It's good to have a a cut rose. It's better to have a rose that's planted and it has roots. Um, Nature, you know, If but the thing to keep in mind is not that it's, it's bad to work together. It's not bad to work together. But you always have to remember that as a baptized believer in Christ, You believe that God is not silent, that he has spoken. And when we think of human rights, that is grounded in that ultimate revelation that at the heart of all creation is not an impersonal cosmic force, but a personal divine family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, You'll hear people say they want to come up with a philosophy of human rights based on nature. Not entirely certain what you mean by that. I mean, if they mean nature in the raw, uh, you know, look, I I go on, I look at nature, I see a lot of cruelty. Uh, Look at the insect world. Annie Dillard's book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, has some horrifying descriptions uh, of what she sees in the world of insects. Nature can be cruel. Um, It teaches us many things, like the power of might over right. The big guy wins. So when people say they want to ground a philosophy of human rights in nature, I think that's dangerous. I'd rather ground a philosophy of human rights in the idea 
that God himself has disclosed who he is, and that the heart of the universe is his call to us to love, as he, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the divine family loves. And this is at the core of what we believe. We believe that before anything, there existed love and communication among the members of the Godhead. Creation flows out of the good pleasure they had with one another, the great joy that they had. The gospel works because it defines what's real. The problem is a lot of people are not asking, what's the source of reality? They just react by feelings. 